Julie Savage is an English woman. She begins the story of her conversion by describing her militant atheism. Christianity she saw simply as an oppressive system of thought, and the sooner the world was free from the contamination, the better. Christianity must go, she says. I lived out my atheist beliefs. I even made a will that specified to have a humanist burial. I used my teaching position very subtly and also openly to undermine Christianity. I sent hostile emails to various Christian anti-abortion groups and this led me to participate in online forums. I enjoyed the challenge, often boasting to my students about my victories. That is what Julie writes. But someone that she's arguing with on the internet must be praying for Julie, that God would bless their words to Julie. And as Julie replies and writes, they write back and they pray. And what happens? They pray that Julie will come to know the glorious reality of the true God. How long, Julie, will you turn God's glory into shame? So the months go by, and then the great change starts to happen. First of all, there's an increasing intellectual curiosity, and it begins to replace her antagonism. Julie begins to ask questions. Are you there, God? Julie decides to visit her church, and for the first three Sundays, she drives there, but she doesn't leave the car. She sits outside, unwilling and unable to join the congregation and then Julie makes it inside and she sits through the service and the next Sunday she returns again and she keeps attending for months unable to walk away but all the time she's looking for ammunition to give the final blow to the Christian God I'll ignore him she decides to herself and all this will simply go away but on the 30th of October 2002 she goes to bed early And at one o'clock she finds herself unable to sleep. And this is what she remembers of that evening. I went downstairs and sat there. A sense of nothingness just grew and grew. Beyond a mere negative emotion, beyond depression, then I became aware of the presence of Christ. I did not see or hear anything, but I knew his reality and his presence and I knew he was saying that's enough now and Christ was right it was enough during the moments that followed I did not decide to adopt some religious principles or embrace some therapeutic system I didn't even become all religious rather I entered into a relationship with my God the God who had hung on a cross for me so that I might be at peace with him and know him. And she thinks back later on and she says, On reflection, I believe it was the awful nothingness that I experienced that night, that that was a glimpse of what it means to be separated from God. That all happened, she explained, some time back. But soon afterwards, I was baptized. Today, I remain assured of the reality of the Lord. I've discovered during these past years that God is no delusion. This is the power of the God I once said was dead. 
That's what, that's what happens to one woman when she follows her delusion long enough. And that takes me to my first main point in Psalm 4, in Psalm 4 about distress. How does this psalm begin? Verse 1. Answer me, says David, when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. David clearly is in distress when he cries out these words. He's crying out to God, give me some relief. And we can all empathize with David, can't we? Every single Christian without exception will know such times. Why is David so upset? Why is he in distress? Certainly not that he has a mistaken view of God, because look at the way he talks about God. He says, Oh, my righteous God, a God of my righteousness. Unbelieving men and women are turning to shame the glory of David's status and his beliefs. How long, verse 2, how long, O people, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? Here are the total contrasts, light and darkness, victory and defeat, glory and shame. People are turning David's glory into its opposite, to shame. And all true believers will have this distress, like David. Remember the Pharaoh who mocks the glory of the Lord in Egypt after God humbles all the creatures that the Egyptians were worshipping. And Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And then there's Jezebel and Ahab, and they send prophets of Baal throughout the land of Israel, pouring contempt on all that God stands for. And then you see Nebuchadnezzar, and he throws into a burning, fiery furnace three young men who glory in the Lord alone and refuse to bow before this great idol that's set up. And today what's happening? Well, a flood of anti-Christian books and propaganda are filling the Western world. And people like Julie Savage are mocking God as though he's not there, mocking the God of the Bible, his miracles and his wonders, and making a shame of God's glory. David looks at the mockers of his day and he asks them, how long will this go on? How long will you keep up your hatred? You're so sure now, but what of the future? Will you be so confident as you grow into middle age and know all those disappointments of those gods you've been worshipping? When you lie on your deathbed and eternity seems so long, with death so final, will you be scorning God's glory then? Who do you love? That's what David's asking. Delusions, says David. How long will you love delusions, verse 2? What is the title of a best-selling anti-Christian book that has made the author a millionaire? The God Delusion. No. There's no delusion about God. It's the atheist delusion. That's what you'll find in the contents in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it's all true. On the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and it's all true. 
One day Jesus Christ will come back in clouds of great glory. And it's all true. Abandon vain delusions and come into the real world. That is what happens to Julie Savage. Julie's delusions have to be abandoned. And why? Because somebody prays for Julie. The Lord knows exactly what to do with false gods and delusions. But there is another reason for David's distress. God wasn't immediately answering him. You see that right at the very first words of this song. Answer, answer me when I call to you. Give me relief from my distress. Hear my prayer. An answer to David's prayer. Where is it? Why wasn't God answering him? Why didn't God seem to be hearing his prayers? Do we hear people talking like that? Yes, we do. Why is that? Well, people think of God as a waiter in a good cafe. And God's immediately coming to serve them. What can I get you? Are you ready to order? Is there something I can get you? But Almighty God is no heavenly waiter. Who does the waiting? We wait on God. You and I are the waiters. And God answers when he thinks best. God, you will remember, is the potter. And we are the clay. You will never get relief from your distress if you stop praying, though. You're meant to pray. Don't give up. Pray briefly and pray often. Pray at appropriate times and even pray at inappropriate times when you're sitting there at the lights and supposed to be concentrating when those lights will change. Pray all the time. Pray when you're walking. Watch where you're going, but pray. Keep praying. David cries to God for a couple of reasons because he knows God's going to hear him. He's distressed by those around him. That's the main reason he starts to pray. For those who love delusions, he's distressed about them. For those who seek false gods and turn David's glory into shame. But he's also praying for mercy. Be merciful to me. David pleads with God to answer him when he calls. What distresses you today? I'll give you a little list from Dr. Packer. See, now I'm not having a go at anyone. What distresses you today? Some Christians are distressed by the memory of a moral lapse. Other Christians blame themselves for the loss of a friend or the loss of a job. And then there's that distressed Christian parent whose children are disappointing him or her. And then there's also those Christians who are distressed by the loss of someone they think should have lived. Well, how are we going to get past distress? My second main point is about certainty. How do you become certain that the Lord will bring you through distress? Verse 3. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. This word know is a key word. It calls our attention, and David is calling our attention to something that's so solemn and so wonderful. I've worked most of my life in the classroom, and students don't really want to learn. They'll do anything but learn. The slightest thing will distract them. 
Therefore, they must be told the same thing over and over and over again, especially when it's a bitter truth that they don't really want to know. You make choices, there are consequences. They don't like that one. You make choices, there are consequences. And the Bible is full of wonderful things that some people find bitter. There's that doctrine of election. That's what David is talking about when he uses this word no. And when he uses these words set apart. Election or a teaching that's of the Bible is a very special truth, but unbelievers cannot endure it. Just the same. It's glorious. And it's well attested. It's on nearly every page of your Bible. Election is the guarantee of a complete rescue, a complete salvation. It's an argument of success at the throne of grace when you pray. The God who chose us for himself will hear us when we cry out to him. The Lord's chosen people aren't condemned, and nor shall they be unheard. David became a king by a divine choice, by God's decree. And people who belong to God, like Julie that I've been talking about, and so many of us here in this room, we're God's by divine choice. When you're on your knees praying, you're set apart as God's own peculiar treasure. And that gives you certainty and inspires you that God's going to answer, that God has an answer for you. It inspires your fervency and your faith. The God who chose to love us cannot but choose to hear us. The Lord will hear when I call to him. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. He who chose to love us cannot but choose to hear us. Let me use an illustration from Spurgeon. A beggar comes to your door and the beggar wants food. The beggar has a firm belief that you're going to give him something. He must have been before. The door doesn't open to him the first time. The beggar knows you have seen him and the beggar understands that you care. He's confident of your generosity. So he continues waiting at the doorstep. You at first take little notice of him. You're busy with other matters. You come again to the window and you say, oh, 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 what, is he still there? Perhaps you've been called to do some urgent business. Today we'd say you're busy on the phone. And you attend to that business rather than to the beggar at the door. But coming once more to the door, there the beggar is. And there you say, well, you shall have your desire and you go and organize things and get the relief that the beggar wants. It's just like that with our God. When he sees us wait for him, he will not permit us to wait without us receiving, our receiving the reward. Let me remind you, we all have heaven, but we don't have the enjoyment of it yet. We're lifted up to heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Paul says in Ephesians 2, but we don't have the enjoyment of that completely yet. And so we may have the answers to our prayers 
As for the sense of those answers, with our five senses, we may not feel or see them, but you have the answers even though you don't see them. Those answers are yours. God chooses to reserve that answer for a season just for the trial of your faith. You may have the answer to many of your prayers, really have the answers, and yet for the present you don't seem to have the answers. Like the aeroplane on a long trip. It may not yet have arrived, but you're on your way there. Your destination is sure. Dear friends, get into that position of knowing that when you've sought the Lord in prayer through Jesus Christ, you have the answers that you've desired from him. 1 John 5, 14. This is the confidence, this is the certainty that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. The Lord will hear when I call to him. This is the promise of verse 4 before we are fully satisfied. The certainty is there even though there are a variety of circumstances. What can we say? The certainty is ours. No stage of life, no special distress in which the true Christian may find oneself. You'll never be away from God's presence, God's protection, God's aid, God's deliverance and God's comfort. He's there. And he has the answers for you. A believing view of knowing this, this wonderful promise, will give your faith such a habit that you'll be rejoicing in God himself and not just getting the answers. He's that kind of God. Think of something we completely take for granted as Christians, that we can run into the presence of God any time, night or day, in any place, and we can whisper into the ears of the creator of the Milky Way, Father, my Father. We can ask about things as trivial as a place to park the car, or we can ask about finding the right partner for our life. We can ask about things as small as temporal mercies. Lord, I need a bit of sunshine, I'm cold now. You can ask for things as trivial as that and yet you can praise God for his magnificent and glorious redemption in Christ. And you can go to him anytime, anywhere. Jonah prays in a fish and you can play anywhere too and praise him and praise him for the forgiveness of your sins, for eternal life, for the hope of heaven. And when you call to him, it won't be a waste of time. 1 John 5, 14, he hears us. You might only be six years of age. You might have spent 20, 30, 40, 50 years in pride and have come to the very end of your days and you know that the Lord has saved you and given you eternal life and he will hear you. There's no qualification here. He will hear you. It's a personal response of a great God. The Lord hears me. The Lord will hear when... I call him, I the speck of dust in his eternal vision, he the immeasurable creator, I a creature whose life speeds by like a weaver's shuttle and it's gone. He is the one from eternity to eternity. Yet I can say to my friends, David says, I want you to know this privilege which I have, the Lord will hear. 
when I called to him. But David, in his certainty, even in his distress, wants his hearers, he puts it in his song, he wants a number of other things to be said to them. Let me single them out in verse 4. In your anger do not sin. What's David's concern? Is he worried in his anger? Or is he worried about other people's anger that he sees welling up in his friends as they look at the people of his generation going astray, loving delusions and seeking false gods? You remember Paul quotes these words to the letter to the Ephesians. In your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, Ephesians 4. Don't go to bed angry with your wife or your husband. Apologize and be reconciled before you sleep. There is a place for holy anger, as Jesus shows us when he cleanses the temple. Jesus was not mean or blasphemous or spiteful in his anger. It was righteous indignation. But be careful not to sin, says David, in your anger. Then he tells us the secret of certainty. David shows us the secret of certainty. Search your hearts and be silent. Verse 4. Make sure you're searching your hearts. Are there no times when you're serious about your life? Is it all about boyfriends and girlfriends and clothes and sport and alcohol and music and holidays? What is the purpose of life? Search your heart. Can you know God? What must you do to get rescued by God? What lies after death? Who really was Jesus Christ and what did he say and do? What is the good life? Is this all there is? Do you never think seriously about such things? When you lie awake after another wasted day, do you search your heart about your life? Turn off the iPod. Turn off the computer game. Turn off the TV set. Close Facebook and be silent and think about your life. Think by yourself. Think about yourself. And think for yourself. People say that Christians are the ones who run on their emotions. We dare not. Life is more than feelings. What did I say three times? Think, think, think. Think by yourself. Think about yourself. Think for yourself. Christians consider a glorious creator, they think. Christians listen to the voice of their conscience. They think, what's God saying to me? Christians consider the Jesus of the Bible. Do you see how David talks to the people around him, his friends or anyone else who will listen? When you're on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. Then he also says, offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord, verse 5. These are basic wisdom statements, aren't they? They must have heard this kind of thing a hundred times. That's okay. It won't do them any harm to hear it again, especially when they're singing in this song. He says, let me make it plain that there is no way you can call God your Father unless there is a sacrifice. A sacrifice that covers sins, offer right sacrifices. Hebrews 9.22 Hebrews 9.22 Without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. That blood shed is demanded by God. 
And God responds to it in his very nature himself. He responds to that blood that's been shed. That's how God is. And then verse 5, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord who loved us and died for us. Trust in the Lord who was raised from the dead for us. Put all your trust for entering heaven in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the certainty that David knew in his days of distress. And that takes me to my last main point about peace. In David's day there were many people who wanted to see signs and visions. They thought, wouldn't that be something good? Who can show us any good? Verse 6. And there were people who followed the Lord Jesus with the hope that he would perform a sign for them. And Jesus told them that it was a sinful, an unbelieving generation that always wanted to see signs. Show us something good, they cried in Jerusalem when David was on the throne. And later when Jesus walks Jerusalem's streets, they want the same thing. We would believe if you would show us something good. But what does God do in David's life instead of visions? What does David see instead of visions? Well, first of all, David looks around him. And what does he see? He sees the light of the Lord's face shining on him. Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. When he wakes up in the morning, he says, I'm still alive, and also those I love. The Lord's mercies are new every morning. I have peace that excels all understanding. David looks through the windows to the hills or he sees the sunlit harbour or he just has a glance up at the sky. How mighty are God's wonders. And David thanks God for his mercies, countless as the sand. And then his thoughts multiply as he sees his sins multiply in his life. But God's grace multiplies infinitely for David. His heavenly father is more willing to pardon David than David is to ask for pardon. Whenever, wherever David goes through the day, the peace of the Lord is with him. David knows that he's a blessed person. David has the great face of the Lord shining down on him hour after hour, and he needs nothing else. He cries that he wants more of that, and he will be satisfied. Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. David looks around. Then David looks within, and what does David see? Massive joy. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound, verse 7. There is a greater joy that comes than when you have your fill of food and when you have all the drinks that you can ever want. What is that joy? Well, it's the joy of peace with God because of Jesus and his cross. David has this joy. You have Jesus has all authority in heaven on earth and is working all things after the counsel of his will. He's working all things for good in your life. Working it all together. He will never leave you. He will supply all your need according to his glorious riches and the God of all grace will always abound his grace towards you. It's the joy of having the truth. The joy of having a Bible, the joy of the Lord's day when you get together with God's people, the joy of Christian friends and family, the joy of fulfilling man's primary purpose, human primary purpose is to honour God, to glorify him and to enjoy him forever, the joy of hope in death, 
the joy of all our sins forgiven, and no fear of any condemnation whatsoever. Isn't that the joy that's better than a full tum and an abundance of wine? That is what David says. He has this joy within him, a joy he can see around him and a joy within him. And then David looks up and he looks to the Lord. David lies down at the end of his day in the darkness of a cave or in a primitive tent. And he isn't afraid of things that will go bang. David can sleep on windy nights. When King Saul hunts him across the desert like a wild animal, David still has peace. Ghosts don't disturb him. He knows when he wakes up the Lord who has watched over him all night. The one who doesn't slumber or sleep will be there smiling on him again. Good morning, my dear David. David has someone to watch over him so he can write these words at the climax of this song, I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. As I conclude this morning, whatever we face, all of you, every one of you, whatever you face in the years to come, there is one truth that's more unshakable than air's rock. Two of my nieces have just been out there. You've seen them on the internet. This world-renowned sandstone formation stands 348 metres high and most of the bulk of Ayers Rock is below the ground and it measures 9.4 kilometres to go all the way around it in circumference. What is more unshakable than Uluru? It is this, that our Lord and Saviour will make us dwell in safety. The Lord has made up his mind. He will ensure that this happens. However great the threats come from outside, if our dear ones die before us, even if this country should be plunged into the most terrible war in the history of the whole world, God will make sure that you dwell in the secret place of the Most High and that you will abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And when you come to your last sleep, you'll know in this world you'll know that sleep, the last sleep from which there's no awakening, then you will rest forever in peace and wake up safely in the arms of Jesus, for he alone makes us dwell in safety forever and ever. Let's speak with him. Lord Christ, we thank you that you've taught us to trust you and that any other way is a way of delusion. That you bring us from distress, distress about those around us, distress about unanswered prayer, and you bring us to a new confidence and certainty, and best of all, your peace. Peace with yourself, and peace about life, and peace, peace about all that life holds. It's all too good to be true but you're a God who doesn't lie. We give you praise, the God who has given everything for us. You've given yourself for us. Lord Jesus, you loved us and gave yourself for us. We give you praise in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen.